Welcome to the Barnes and Thornburg Podcast Network. You are listening to Seventh Circuit Roundup, a podcast devoted to keeping you up to date on the latest decisions out of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. I'm Kyan Hudson. In each episode, I'll be joined by my partner and fellow appellate litigator, Mark Cranley, to explore some of the Seventh Circuit's most consequential recent opinions. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Mark, it is great to be chatting with you today. Um, maybe we could start our inaugural podcast by telling our listeners uh, what we have in store for them. Well, uh, our, our goal and our view here is to uh, try and identify and discuss in as lively a tone and hopefully as you'll see that, that Kyan and I have a, a good repertoire uh, together. <laughs> Um, but but to present you in in some detail, uh, the cases that are going to impact practice, impact uh, uh, societies in general from the Seventh Circuit, and and provide what insights uh, we can uh, between the two of us uh, on uh, development in law and the court we all practice in front of. That's right, and maybe we could start by giving listeners a little bit of background on the Seventh Circuit. So the U.S. courts, they're simple three-tier structure. You've got district courts that hold trials, and then the appellate courts, which are called circuit courts, and then the U.S. Supreme Court, which hears uh, mostly discretionary appeals. They get to pick their docket. And among the federal appellate courts, uh, we have 11 regional circuits plus the D.C. Circuit and the federal circuit. And uh, the regional circuits are numbered basically starting in, roughly starting in the Northeast with the first circuit, and then moving south and then west, and then back at the very end um, to the southeast with the 11th Circuit. So it's a little confusing, but basically it moves uh, east to west in increasing numbers. And so the 7th Circuit, roughly in the middle of the country, is Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. So those three states, and the court handles a wide variety of cases, lots of civil cases, lots of diversity cases, uh, civil diversity cases. Um, but is famous for having uh, some of the best uh, appellate judges in the country. And we are, Mark and I are, uh, it's a real privilege to practice before the Seventh Circuit. Uh, we practice all around the country, but it's, it's really special to practice before the Seventh Circuit. It's a great, great court. And the courthouse is in Chicago in the Dirksen Building. And uh, I have to say, doing oral arguments in the Dirksen Building is so much fun. It's uh, it's not for the faint of heart. So lots of oral arguments, you know, as you know, Mark, like lots of oral arguments, you, the courtroom is, is small, it's intimate. You, you might have a, a three judge panel that's a few, maybe 10 feet away from you as an advocate, you know, it's real close. Um, the, the, the room as a whole is pretty small. The Dirksen building is the exact opposite, right? So the, the building itself is humongous. Um, and the, Court of Appeals courtroom, the Seventh Circuit courtroom, it looks like Spectre headquarters, right? <laughs> it's, like it's the Mies van der Rohe building, right? So it's like all, it's all glass and steel. The emblem of the court is in like onyx in the back. It feels like you're a hundred feet away from the judges. Like you, you feel like this like puny little person. They're up on a pedestal. Um, it's just, so it's totally appropriate. When, and of course, when Frank Easterbrook is on the bench, um, you always have the fear that he has a lever that if you, he doesn't like the answer that you're going to give, he'll pull the lever and 
um, the advocate will will fall through into the basement of the courthouse. So I'm pretty sure that's uh, not true because he would have pulled it on me a few times uh, in my my past practice. Yeah. So so as Mark said, what we're what we're going to try to do is describe uh, what we think are some of the most interesting opinions. The Seventh Circuit, unlike the U.S. Supreme Court, here is a lot of cases, um, and so they issue lots of opinions each month. And uh, we make it a practice to read most of them, at least most of the civil cases, uh, opinions in civil cases. And uh, so we'll select what we think are the you know, two or three most interesting, most consequential opinions um, and discuss them both with an eye to giving listeners an idea of what the cases are about and how the law is changing or getting clarified, uh, but also for insights into Seventh Circuit and appellate practice more generally, because a lot of times when we discuss these cases, um, there will be insights into interesting ways that the Seventh Circuit works that are uh, somewhat unusual. I think we'll get into that a little bit. So uh, today for you all, we have two cases we're going to talk about. One about the Rooker-Feldman doctrine um, for Fed courts nerds um, like Mark and I. It's very, very interesting, so I'm excited about that. And then we also have an ERISA case, actually, an ERISA case that had been before the U.S. Supreme Court, now before the Seventh Circuit. The Seventh Circuit issued its opinion on remand. And uh, Mark and I were deciding, okay, which, which of these two cases do we start off with? And uh, the marketing folks here at Barnes and Thornburg suggested, whatever you do, do not start your inaugural <laughs> podcast with an ERISA case. Like you just kick, come on, like, what are you doing? That's no way to build viewers, <laughs> no, no way to build listeners. So um, and we know the ERISA lawyers out there listening to this know this full well. So hopefully you're laughing along with us. Exactly. Exactly. We love ERISA. ERISA is super interesting. You know, like that kind of complexity is so much fun. Um, but uh, we thought we would start with something uh, with somewhat broader application, and that is the Rooker-Feldman Doctrine. So uh, the case that we're going to talk about, um, this case was decided March 14th, uh, March 14th, 2023, and it's called Hadzi Tanovich versus Johnson. And the issue here is something called the Rooker-Feldman Doctrine, and that doctrine gets its name from um, two Supreme Court cases, one from the 1920s, and one from the 1980s. So the first is Rooker Fidelity Trust, um, and the second is DC Court of Appeals versus Feldman. The details of those cases don't really matter. What is important is where the doctrine comes from. So take a step back. You're litigating in state court about something, doesn't matter what it is, and you lose. Mark, what is the next step? What are you, you supposed appeal, to do? You appeal if you have a final judgment, right? Well, to, to, to whom? To whom? Yeah, Who to, do you, to, your, to whom do you appeal? Your your state your state intermediate court of appeals, unless you're in one of those states where you don't have that. Where do you go if you don't like that answer? You go to the state court of last resort. And then what do you do if you really don't like that answer? Well, hopefully you've got a federal constitutional issue tucked somewhere in the case, and you take that one in a million flyer to go up to the U.S. Supreme Court. All right, and so the uh, the key thing here is that the U.S. Supreme Court is the only court that has jurisdiction to review decisions of state courts. So that's a statutory um, jurisdictional rule. So the in so in these cases, Rooker and Feldman, the U.S. Supreme Court said, look, if you're challenging a state court decision, you need to take it up with us, the U.S. Supreme Court. Don't go running into a federal district court. Federal district courts are courts of original jurisdiction, not appellate jurisdiction. 
Um, a distinction that will be familiar to any first-year law student, right? I mean, that's Marbury versus Madison, right? The, the mm -hmm. difference between original and appellate jurisdiction. So that's Rooker-Feldman doctrine. You take appeals of state court decisions to SCOTUS, not to individual federal district courts. Okay, so what's going on here? That seems like a pretty simple rule. Well, um, the devil, as always in the law, is in the details. What does it mean to be challenging a state court decision? What exactly does that mean? So here, in this case, um, we have an Illinois um, child custody dispute. And uh, the details in this particular case, there are some pretty serious allegations, but the details um, don't matter too much for our purposes. Um, the key thing is uh, one of the, uh, so the, you have a trial court that uh, initially divides custody of the children 50-50, um, there's an appeal of that decision, and uh, the decision is affirmed, and the Illinois case ends. And then later, the, child, the family court goes back, and in response to one of the parents' um, requests, um, requires the other parent to exercise custody only under supervision, which, of course, that parent does not like. Um, the that parent filed a notice of appeal, uh, but failed to file an opening brief, and the Illinois Appellate Court dismissed the appeal. Yes. So the uh, the after that, the parent who lost um, files a lawsuit in federal district court and says the opposing parent and the guardian ad litem in this case and the state judge, all engaged in a conspiracy to deprive me of my constitutional rights. Um, and among other things, um, constitutional rights to a um, fair and unbiased trier of fact. So that's the, that's the federal lawsuit. Uh, the way the Seventh Circuit addresses, uh, approaches this question is to say, number one, Rooker-Feldman doctrine, in order to apply, you have to have a final judgment. So Rooker-Feldman doctrine doesn't apply if the state case is ongoing. Well, there's a little bit of complexity. How does that apply to child custody proceedings or family court proceedings generally? Those basic oftentimes, you know, in one way or another, it varies from state to state, but oftentimes remain open in a sense for many, many years. So how does this, how does this work? So kind of, kind of hard to argue you don't have a final judgment too when you've taken an appeal, although you, you've oh, messed exactly. up the appeal. Well, that's what's, so, that's what's so interesting. So like, does final for the purposes of Rooker-Feldman doctrine, is that coterminous with appealable, right? I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a logic there, right? Um, and so it's uh, interesting you say that, Mark. Um, you see, see, folks, you don't, we don't even plan this in advance. Like that's the, that is the brilliant, that's Mark Cranley's brilliance that he was able to anticipate what the Seventh Circuit was doing. So I'm just in uh, your head, man. <laughs> so yes, yes. So the, so the Seventh Circuit says, uh, look, we understand, you know, there is the, the, Child custody court exercises continuing management of the case, but the judgment requiring supervision was immediately appealable, so it was therefore final. I mean, that's they they that's essentially the logic. It's pretty straightforward. Um, even though the court may modify the order in the future, it's final for Rooker-Feldman purposes. Okay, so that's the that's like the the first issue. Pretty straightforward. Not really the key one. Like the key issue is the second one. So the uh, 
Seventh Circuit has said in order for Rooker-Feldman to apply, the injury that the federal plaintiff is complaining about needs to be caused in some way by the state court judgment. So it can't be, if it's independent of the state court judgment, that's like the key term, um, then Rooker-Feldman doesn't apply and there might be other problems, <laughs> which we'll get into, but Rooker-Feldman's not a problem for the plaintiff. Um, so the Seventh Circuit in a series of cases um, before this, over the course of the last several years, um, had suggested that if the plaintiff, the federal court plaintiff's theory is a corruption of process, that there was some sort of conspiracy and that the whole state court process was corrupted, including by participation of the state court judge, then your injury is really, the, the Seventh Circuit suggested, is freestanding and it's not just caused by the judgment. And so therefore, and you have to be, you have to be able to file suit in federal court. And uh, again, these are, these are suggestions, um, alternative grounds for holdings. So we, the Seventh Circuit had never reversed, so to speak, or had never granted, had never affirmed relief in a case like this, um, but had suggested at the very least that Rooker-Feldman um, doesn't apply. Says, no, we're, over, we're overturning those earlier decisions and uses the word over, overruling explicitly. So this is not a, this isn't a subtle, like, I'm, I'm overruling it in effect. No, no, no. The, the court uses the magic words overrule. We have reviewed these cases and conclude that recognizing a corruption exception should be overruled. And uh, the court's, uh, the court's reasoning here, I think, is, is really interesting. The, the court says, in essence, this, this exception, number one, would blow a hole in Rooker-Feldman because it would allow anybody to get a rabbi Rooker-Feldman just by alleging more and more fantastical um, allegations, raising more and more fantastical allegations of corruption. Um, and more fundamentally, the, the court, and let me just quote this because I think it's, I think it's, it encapsulates really the, the central thrust of Judge Hamilton's opinion. He says, quote, the problem here is that the only way a federal court could determine the merits of those allegations, that is the allegations of corruption, would be to review the state court's handling of the case from top to bottom, substantively and procedurally. If the state court's decisions appeared to be well-grounded in law and fact and reached through fair procedures, federal court would presumably conclude they were not rooted in bias or corruption. If the federal court found factual, legal, or procedural errors, the court would have to consider whether the errors were ordinary errors of a fallible human institution or instead the product of corruption. Yet, Rooker-Feldman is supposed to prohibit lower federal courts from engaging in what amounts to appellate review of state court decisions in this manner. So Judge Hamilton says, look, like this, we can't, this exception is antithetical to the whole point of Rooker-Feldman, which is SCOTUS reviews state court decisions and again, SCOTUS can only review state court decisions on federal law grounds, not on state law grounds. Not us. That's not, that's not the job of federal district courts or federal circuit courts, for that matter. Um, and, and I thought it was interesting. Judge Hamilton notes, look, we, we are not unsympathetic to the notion that our holding here means there would be no federal remedy for a violation of federal rights whenever the violator so far succeeds in corrupting the state judicial process as to obtain a favorable judgment. Um, so the court recognizes that there are 
costs, you might say, to this rule. But this nice, clean rule um, prevents, it just says, no, you are never allowed to do this. Rooker-Feldman applies. Um, you, can't, you can't come into federal district court. First, first point, so, the, so attentive listeners, um, both of you, uh, will, have, will, have, will have wondered, what the heck? What are you talking about? Panels, one panel of a circuit court can't overrule the decision of a prior circuit court. What's going on here? What is, what is Judge Hamilton, what gives Judge Hamilton the authority to do this? So here's where we get a little bit of specific Seventh Circuit practice uh, insight. So the Seventh Circuit has a not completely unique, but somewhat unusual rule um, called Circuit Rule 40E that allows a panel to circulate its uh, draft opinion to all of the active circuit judges um, proposing to overrule precedent. And if a majority of active circuit judges vote not to rehear the case on Bonk, then the opinion can go out overruling prior precedent without the need for a full on Bonk hearing and argument and all of that. And the court uses this procedure, oftentimes without the solicitation of the parties, um, with some frequency. So it's something, it's, it's certainly something to keep in mind. And from a strategic point of view, as an appellate litigator, it means that in the Seventh Circuit, there are, especially if you are dealing with what you view as disadvantageous precedent that's 30 years old and has never been reaffirmed, you've got a better shot in the Seventh Circuit of getting that overturned than you will in other circuits. Because in the Seventh Circuit, the panel doesn't have to go on bonk to overturn it. The panel isn't absolutely bound in the way that panels in other circuits are. In other circuits, the panel has to, has to apply the prior panel's decision, and the only way to get around it is to actually file a petition for rehearing on bonk and undo it and overrule it. That's not the case in the Seventh Circuit. You can just ask, I think, you know, we think that this should be overruled and, you know, it should be done under Rule 40E. And there is, there's a, again, it's not, it's in any individual case, it's probably not likely, more likely than not, but it's something to be aware of. It's a, um, a strategic wrinkle in the Seventh Circuit um, that, can, that can make a big difference, especially in situations where you, the older opinions are outliers. I mean, do you have, do you have any thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I guess I have one of the things I was thinking is the kind of the converse of the, hey, this is a tool we can use, which is a lot of times you have, you're advising a client who is relying on authority that maybe has a shaky <laughs> premise or, yeah, or has some good. age age on it. You want to be able to warn them before you get up. And I mean, the district courts are going to, for the most part, pretty diligently follow yeah. uh, black letter law. Uh, but the Seventh Circuit has this option, as and and there's a device for doing that in a nice, simple, easy way that a client evaluating whether they want to settle uh, prior to an appeal, which is you know something you're probably going to confront through the the settlement uh, office, uh, needs to keep this in mind that they may be looking at a direct challenge to that uh, authority uh, on the appeal as as part of it, which is a you know pretty significant factor in, in weighing what you want to do with the appeal. So here, the Judge Hamilton's opinion has a footnote. Uh, and Judge Hamilton here was joined by the two other members of the panel, uh, Judges Rovner and Brennan. His op opinion has a footnote, which, as they do when Rule 40E is invoked, um, that notes that a majority of judges, of active judges on the court, voted not to rehear the case on Bonk. Uh, the, however, uh, two judges, Judges St. Eve and Kirsch, voted in favor of rehearing on Bonk. 
and uh, filed a dissent from the denial of rehearing on Bach. Uh, Judge Kirsch authored the dissent, joined by Judge St. Eve. So, Mark, have any guesses as to what Judges Kirsch and St. Eve views are on Rooker Feldman? Well, I'm not sure it would be a doctrinal objection. I'm thinking perhaps something about abandoning prior precedent is, is what's causing issues here. So interestingly, not at all. No, the issue is not about prior precedent. It is instead grounded really fundamentally in a simple observation, which is the Rooker-Feldman doctrine, which as I said, takes its name from two cases, very old, one from the 20s, um, the other from the 80s, has been successfully invoked in the U.S. Supreme Court twice, no. in Rooker and in Feldman. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> in a case called Exxon, Exxon Mobil Corporation versus Saudi Basic Industries, the uh, court begins by saying the Rooker-Feldman doctrine is confined to cases of the kind from which the doctrine acquired its name. Cases brought by state court losers complaining of injuries caused by state court judgments rendered before the district court proceedings commenced and inviting district court review and rejection of those judgments. The uh, and the so we have judge uh, judges Kirsch and Saint Eve saying whoa 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 the Supreme Court has not given any indication that the Rooker Feldman doctrine should be this widely applicable rule that kicks out a bunch of cases on jurisdictional grounds. Um, what's going on here? We've, we've, allowed, we've allowed this doctrine to um, grow larger than it should. And I think I, I, I'd like to point out here sort of where the dispute really lies, because I, I think it's pretty interesting because it gets to some ambiguity in the Supreme Court's own language about this. So, um, so Judge Kirsch, um, Summarizes the uh, summarizes the statement that I just quoted from Exxon um, that Rooker-Feldman requires four criteria: federal case brought by the state court loser, number one; number two, plaintiff complains of an injury caused by the state court judgment; number three, state court judgment was rendered before the federal proceedings began; and four, the key one in his view, is the plaintiff is not asking the federal court to merely disagree with but to review and reject, that is to overturn or undo the state court judgment. So Judge Kirsch says, look, 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 I, I, he, he doesn't indicate any disagreement with the, even with the rule that the Seventh Circuit adopts about corruption. Like that's not the, that's not the substance of his dissent at all. Um, it's instead that he says, look, the Seventh Circuit, <clears throat> my colleagues have ignored this last key requirement. Um, it's not just about whether or not, it's not just about whether the injury that the plaintiff is complaining of was caused by the state court judgment. There has to, the key language, and here I'll quote from the U.S. Supreme Court again, is inviting district court review and rejection of the state court judgment. So he says that's the key, that's the key, that's a key requirement. And um, how does Judge Kirsch sort of operationalized to use an ugly Latinization. Um, he says, only if a plaintiff, I'm quoting now, only if a plaintiff seeks to vacate relief awarded or to obtain relief denied by the state court. 
to undo or overturn the state court judgment does Rooker-Feldman bar her claim. If she seeks another form of relief that does not ask the district court to overturn a state court judgment, then her claim is well within a district court's power to adjudicate. So here, Judge Kirsch is looking at the remedy that the plaintiff is seeking. So this is not a practical inquiry about inconsistency or contradiction or anything along those lines. He's saying if the remedy you're asking for isn't vacate the state court judgment, then or or and so there's two, two parts, vacate the state court judgment or obtain the relief that you are asking for in state court. So say here, child custody, um, then Rooker-Feldman doesn't apply. Maybe there are other issues. Preclusion, of course, is the big one. Right. Um, but not Rooker-Feldman. And so what, what that would practically mean is if the federal plaintiff is seeking damages, damages. then Rooker-Feldman, right, Rooker-Feldman basically would never apply in the damages situation. Um, and so we have these, we have these uh, um, judges, Kirsch and St. Eve, who are taking this much narrower view of Rooker-Feldman. And I think it's notable that no one else, no one else on the court joined them on this. Now, we, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else on the court agrees with uh, the broader principle, but it does, it, it is indicative of the court's general approach to Rooker-Feldman, uh, which, which outside of this corruption exception that this case is about, um, has been pretty consistent for the last um, several decades, that the court is pretty serious. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to challenge state court decisions in federal court, and Rooker-Feldman is going to be there. And I think I would take this moment, at, uh, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, Mark, because I know this is something that you deal with all the time. The, I think that the Seventh Circuit's approach to Rooker-Feldman here is really just exemplary of the court's broader disinclination to bring what are ultimately state court, state law disputes yeah. into federal court under the guise of Section 1983. And I'll pause here for um, the law, any law student listeners we have who are wondering what the heck, are, what is Section 1983? Section 19, if there is one provision of the U.S. Code that that is like the most famous, it's got to be Section 1983, right? Which is which authorizes um, a cause of action for the deprivation of constitutional rights, Alleg allegedly among other things. Whether or not there are, are among other things is a subject that the U.S. Supreme Court is addressing yeah. um, potentially this term, actually. So or the, the extent to which there are other things that maybe is a better way of putting it. Um, so, uh, so that's section 1983. So very, very, very important. Um, and uh, the seventh circuit uses a variety of doctrines. Indeed, in this very case, the district court declined to apply Rooker Feldman. So the district court said, oh, I'm not really sure if there's a final judgment here. Plus I feel bound by this corruption exception. Um, but nevertheless, I'm going to dismiss the case without prejudice under the seventh circuit's general abstention doctrine for cases involving what are ultimately state law issues. You're challenging the state court's process and you have an opportunity to raise your federal constitutional claims. So no, you're not allowed. We're not going to, we don't, we don't need to do that. That's not our job. That's the state court's job. Um, and I think all of these are sort of under the rubric of the, you know, what fed courts scholars might call the our federalism doctrines, right? That, we trust state courts to do like they're equally capable of resolving federal constitutional issues as federal courts are. And so if you've got a, a chance procedurally to raise your arguments, 
and you could have, then, you know, you're going to have to have a really good reason to come into federal court. Um, and there's a variety of doctrines to sort of make that general approach manifest. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, it reminds me of the, the, the Seventh Circuit being the leader, really, in what used to be called Williamson County abstention, where you couldn't get in the federal court on land use decisions unless you took the case all the way through the administrative process and up in the state court. Um, and the cases, I think our circuit was was a leader in that uh, until the Supreme Court reversed that, doc- largely reversed that yeah. doctrine recently. Um, and the cases went from, this is the doctrine. And that, that's, uh, for listeners, that's Nick. That's the township of Nick versus Scott, Nick. I think, right? Is yep. that K-N-I-C-K. K-N-I-C-K, yep. Yep. Um, and the cases eventually got to the point where one of them famously led with the line, the Seventh Circuit is not a board of zoning appeal. And they it's very clearly indicating we're going to carve out these kind of state law issues. And we we don't want to be the arbiter of things that are purely state law. That's uh, right. So I, and if you, if you do a Westlaw search for we are not a board of zoning appeal, you find it again and again and again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Seventh Circuit decisions. They do yep. not. They do not. In one way or another, the, the case is. Uh, uh, it's very difficult to get those cases um, into federal court um, in the Seventh Circuit for exactly these reasons. And I think the Rooker-Feld, this discussion of Rooker-Feldman, which is not, oftentimes is not directly applicable to, say, you know, zoning issues that implicate 1983 uh, or implicate federal constitutional issues, it's of a piece of the Seventh Circuit's general approach here, exactly. um, which is to funnel disputes into state court where the you know, state state judges, both trial judges and appellate judges, understand the state law, understand state procedure, and are capable of evaluating decisions, both on the merits and procedurally, for compliance with federal constitutional requirements. And, and the court's not eager to put its toe in and federalize those issues. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And I think that's what you see. That's what you see here. And uh, and so th- this decision, I think, worth worth reading for all of these reasons. I mean, I I hope it it we. Have really, I think, only scratched the surface of the opinion. There's, there's lots in here. Um, it's not terribly long, but I think it is. It's fascinating. So, Mark, what do you have for us today? Yeah, uh, switching gears to a case that's clearly within federal jurisdiction. Uh, promise me you're not going <laughs> to turn off the podcast at this point when I mention again that this is an ERISA case. I promise you that in return, I will try and find some practical general practice uh, issues in this case that that will be of interest to you. Uh, so the case is Hughes versus uh, Northwestern University. It is an ERISA case. It's an ERISA uh, retirement plan case uh, where employees of uh, the university sued uh, over certain aspects of their retirement plan. Uh, this was in the land of ERISA called a defined contribution plan which is really just the magic words. A lot of understanding of is knowing what the magic words means. But this is a type of plan like a 401k. What's not technically a 401k, so I know all the ERISA lawyers listening probably just groaned when I made that because this is actually you know, a nonprofit entity that they don't have 401ks. Uh, but it's the idea of you're paying a, a contribution into your plan um, and uh, sometimes there's a match, but it's not, it's not, not a pension. Plans have fiduciaries. And th- again, think trustee and trust, the same concept. Uh, here, the argument is that the fiduciary hasn't been carrying out the uh, the, the plan uh, in a way that is consistent with those fiduciary duties in two respects. Uh, one is that the fees the 
plan was paying for record keeping, if you've got a large plan like an, a, an entity as large as Northwestern University would have, you've got a lot of records to keep, a lot of reporting to do. Uh, that gets expensive. And they're saying that, you know, you've, you could have gone out in the market and done better. And the second was the investment options that were available um, were not uh, appropriate. That we're a large entity at Northwestern. We should be getting wholesale rates. Uh, it's called institutional uh, in the ERISA context, but it's the same concept of buying retail versus buying wholesale. We should be getting, we should have enough bargaining power to get the wholesale benefits and not not be paying retail like someone would off the street. Wait, so, so Mark, you're, you're saying you're saying the, the plaintiffs here are complaining that Northwestern is selling them oranges at Whole Foods prices, not Costco prices. Like that's the got it. Got it. Okay. Exactly. And you should have you should have gone out and, and negotiated those those Costco prices. And these, and these um, fiduciary duties, where do they where do they come from? Are these is this like a common law duty? How does this work? No, straight out of ERISA. ERISA Got takes trust, okay. law, trust law concepts and says a fiduciary owes those and, and literally says just as it would be at common law. So there is a little bit of common sense under ERISA. I know that's, you know, maybe uh, unexpected, but that's that's the idea. Of, of, and, and so a lot of times in these ERISA cases, you'll see the court looking at at common law concepts. And here we're talking about a duty of prudence and using the assets just like you would have, uh, you know, a, on a, as a trustee and taking you back to your bar exam context. Um, the case was dismissed at the district court level. The district court and the original Seventh Circuit opinion found that, look, if you look at the actual plan offerings, there are low fee options. If that was really your, your motivator, you could have bought, you as the, the, the beneficiary here, could have just picked the lower fee option. The same fee level you're complaining about was sitting right there. Uh, same thing with the investment options. There were options where you could have gone and chosen one that had something more akin to that institutional rate than than what you were paying. So uh, a long, uh, fairly stable line of Seventh Circuit cases said that. So lo and behold, case originally comes up to the Seventh Circuit. Uh, put a finger, put a, uh, a tie a string around your finger for that one because it's it's going to uh, come back. Uh, Judge Brennan writes an opinion that just applies those principles and says, look, the the Plans had those, so you can't hold them for breaching a fiduciary duty when they offered you exactly what you're saying you were entitled to. But lo and behold, cert's granted. Um, and the Supreme Court, in a unanimous opinion, reverses. Um, comes and they, they say essentially uh, that you can't take the categorical approach, and that term categorical approach appears in the remand opinion that we're going to talk about here in a minute probably a half dozen times, most of which are in quotes. Uh, I'll, I'll forgo any commentary as to why there's quotes around it. Uh, but the court says, look, you need to take a case specific, look at the exact facts of the complaint. And you know, there's not a per se rule that just because there's similar type options available, that's not going to excuse a fiduciary duty. If there are other allegations in the complaint that would show that the uh, uh, fiduciary failed to live up to their obligation to lower costs overall and find appropriate options. So the bright line approach that the uh, court took in the original opinion is thrown out. The court tells them, look at those two claims and, and come up with um, uh, a holding based on the specific facts. So the first thing we get in the opinion, which I think is very interesting, is not anything to do with, at least specifically, the complaint in the Hughes case. There is the very first section of the substantive analysis of the opinion is what I would call a here's what the Hughes Supreme Court opinion didn't do. 
uh, and they they carve out three areas where they're saying, here's lines of our authority that that, that opinion didn't undo. And I guess, Kyan, I would throw to you, what do you think about that approach from a from an appellate lawyer standpoint, the, the court kind of going out of its way to explain, you know, here's what's that issue, here's what's not. Here's what's still safe after that opinion. I, in my view, Mark, if you're, if you're an advocate, you should presume that that is what an appellate court following remand, or a district court, for that matter, following remand from an intermediate appellate court, will do. I mean, that, that, that is the natural inclination, right, is to say, we've got our marching orders, but our marching orders aren't the whole thing. There's lots of other questions that remain unanswered, and we might have binding answers to those still. And so we've got to figure out to what degree did the new marching orders displace existing rules. And that's, I mean, you, you have, it's, I mean, the, unless the U.S. Supreme Court makes it very clear that this is a landmark ruling or overruling a bunch of things. This is a sea change, which is highly unlikely. Normally, courts don't do that. They, they like to uh, proceed in a piecemeal, or not piecemeal, but step-by-step fashion. Um, if, and so if the Supreme Court characterizes its opinion as a marginal clarification in the law, then the natural thing for the lower court to do is to say, okay, well, we we have to figure out what exactly that means and what are the things that it didn't change. I, I tend to agree with that. I think it's really important in this type of area of law where people are are looking at these cases and making decisions that are going to affect people down the road uh, based on what's there and what's not. And it really is hard to read, um, you know, any six zero opinion. Or I'm sorry, say I think it was I think it was an eight zero opinion. I think Justice Barrett um, uh, recused herself in the Supreme Court opinion. Any any opinion that's unanimous at the Supreme Court is going to be a, a, a beast of compromise and not say a lot. And it doesn't. It, it affects some very specific aspects of the earlier Seventh Circuit opinion. So I, I think it was wise for the court, particularly in this context, to pick out areas where there's going to be future litigation. Uh, for one, one of the areas they addressed was a line of cases that where the Seventh Circuit had said that um, having a record-keeping plan where you're you're paying for these record-keeping costs that comes out of revenue sharing. Instead of a flat fee, you could have a system where, okay, we're going to take 10% of the revenue generated by the plan and use that as, as and I'm pulling the 10% figure out of out of the air, so don't hold me to that. Uh, but you're going to use that as the means of paying for it, which gives the plan a further incentive to increase revenues. It, it lightens the load uh, uh, on smaller plans. Um, and the Seventh Circuit's previously said that's fine, but that's the type of plan we're dealing with here. And I, th- I think there was a legitimate concern from from the court that uh, challengers could read the Hughes opinion as potentially undermining that. And it, it's important for those running plans to know, hey, at least in the Seventh Circuit, we're not going to we, we still continue to believe that's an appropriate way to go. And there may be case specific challenges, but we're not undoing that per se rule. So I think that uh, shows some forth foresight on the on the court's part. Now, there may be arguments about whether the, this this instruction is is dicta, but I I think that's for a, a brave lawyer to make somewhere down the road and, and not for not for me to say. Uh, um, the court's ultimate analysis on the on the two claims is is a lesson in pleading, uh, particularly Twombly and Iqbal pleading. Um, the first thing they did is is reject a general claim that the um, uh, fiduciary made that the uh, look, if you're holding us to the standard plaintiffs and we can't be held to the standard unless you plead 
that we, I can actually do these things. So there, the, one of the claims on the fees is that experts in the market would say thir- $35 uh, flat fee per uh, plan participant was an appropriate level uh, of fee, or at least a flat fee, for this type of plan. Uh, and the uh, fiduciary turned around and said, well, who's, who's offering that? Where could I go buy that? You're telling me I not only did something wrong, but I breached my fiduciary duties. I need to be able to, you need to be able to show me that I could have actually done that. And the court rejected that as a per se rule, at least at the pleading stage. And we can talk about that here in a little bit. And, and said, look, the, the standard under equal and obvious is plausibility. Is there facts in this complaint that would lead to an inference that you could obtain this type of um, uh, type of, of cost uh, uh, charge for your record keeping? And to their credit, the plaintiffs did include a, a significant amount of detail in their complaint. They included uh, expert opinions um, that said, again, that $35 flat fee is something that is common in the market and that it's you know significantly less than the revenue sharing. They, they, they included uh, calculations that showed that the $35 flat freeze is about a million a year for a plan of this size where the revenue sharing would be four to five million. Pretty powerful fact to include in a case where you're saying a fiduciary wasn't diligent in, in keeping costs down or keeping to a reasonable level. Uh, they alleged that there were uh, competitors, and they identified these competitors of the provider who were offering similar services at that rate. Now, without discovery, you can't you can only get what's publicly available, so that's that's a handcuff there. But certainly, including that information is powerful. And, I, uh, and Mark, but, on that on that point specifically, I thought that was that's an important point because the I think from the Seventh Circuit's point of view, that that is a real that's that's a real thing that plaintiffs have to do. That I think if, if the Seventh Circuit hadn't mentioned that, then it would be easier for plaintiffs to argue in the future. Well, we just all we have to do is say you could have, and that's enough of an allegation. And the Seventh Circuit is saying we don't just have a bare allegation here. There are some concrete facts from which the inference could reasonably be drawn, including the specific fact about competitors consolidating and, and lowering fees. And I think that's a that's going to be I think a key like. In future ERISA litigation about uh, about these sorts of fees, I think that's going to be a key a key fact that's going to appear in uh, parties' briefs on both sides. Yeah, one of the things reinforcing that is the court distinguished a bunch of earlier cases because this this complaint had that fact in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you've got to be careful when you're pleading; you've got to be able to back that up. So it, it, it's going to be going to the crux of these types of cases. So. Uh, be prepared for that discovery request. But I also think another big fact they had included is that they went out and found other universities. And I'm wondering if there wasn't a lot of public records requests that preceded this complaint, because most of the universities that are relying on were like Purdue University, public universities, uh, and found that they had negotiated with providers similar to the fiduciary here and gotten the kind of discounts that they think were appropriate in this case. So they have real world evidence that this is possible. Maybe you know we can talk later when discovery about how it would actually happen here. But we we're not just speculating or, or making bald allegations that hey they ex- could have done X Y and Z. They're backing it up with, and these people out here in the market have already done that. I think that that, that was a, a really persuasive fact to the court. Um, ultimately, I think this case it'll be interesting to see what happens on remand. Now, I mean, if, if the case is back out of the Seventh Circuit, presumably, I suppose there's always a chance of a cert petition, but uh, the odds of lightning striking the same twice, same case twice, particularly in a land, aren't great. 
Um, so we're going back to the district court to uh, find out how this is going to happen under a, a different standard review. Go ahead, Con. And Mark, how did how did the how did the Seventh Circuit approach the the option the menu claim? Because there was the right there were these two claims. Right, one is about one's about the record keeping fees, and the other is about the menu. And the Supreme Court said it's not enough if you offer a Costco price banana. You that's not categorically yeah, yeah, exactly. that's, that's not categorically sufficient. You might have to offer a Costco price orange and apple too i guess i mean yeah, I, I think the, the court really went down the same road as far as let's look at this specific context which is you know faithful to what the supreme court said they were required to do on remand and and again the the type of facts that were developed in the complaint were about the bargaining power of Northwestern to expand the menu and, and make these kind of things available. Other institutions of similar size and similar bargaining power were able to obtain that. They showed in the market that these types of things were available by specific example. I think those things were really important to the court. Again, mm -hmm. the more flesh you can put on the bones, the more likely you're, you're able to uh, get past uh, the stage. And I think I think the pleading issues in the case are really telling, uh, not just in the ERISA context, yeah. but you can think of of different real world contexts uh, where possible alternatives really play a role in pleading. I mean, think about your your mm -hmm. tort claims or your products liability claims where an alternative design uh, is is a potential issue. And this would, I think, by by implication, kind of bleed over into those types of areas. And it's something to keep an eye on for for future development. And again, that's a, I, that's I, a great point, Mark. I think the and the this case is a great example from a practice point or point of view of it's a case where the procedural pot, the case is all about the procedural posture, right? I mean, this is all about what exactly do you have to put in a complaint in order to survive a motion to dismiss in the ERISA context. But there is a lots of language in this opinion that gives substantive content to ERISA's requirements. And so this is an opinion that's going to be really important at the summary judgment stage, too, for different purposes, right? Because the Seventh Circuit is saying this is a substantive requirement. You know, at the motion to dismiss stage, these kind of allegations are sufficient. But at summary judgment, you have to have enough evidence to allow a jury to reasonably infer that for example, the Costco rates were actually available, right? And so I think that, that this case is a good example of how the, even though the procedural posture really matters, when you dig in in detail to the opinion, it's going to have sweeping consequences at all procedural stages of litigation. And it's interesting, too, to think about, I mean, I try and put myself in the, the shoes of the litigators in these cases and what I would do if I was the, the plan fiduciaries counsel and how hard I would push the, well, we couldn't actually do this button on remand. On one point, I, mean, I think it's a good, strong fact for them, but it's not, a, it's not a dispositive fact. But you also have the real world, back of the mind of the judge kind of issue that, are you really going to push this issue on summary judgment when it's gone up to the Supreme Court and been subject to two different uh, Seventh Circuit appeals? It may be a bit dangerous. Uh, so there's some really interesting issues. And I expect mm -hmm. we'll see them. I mean, one of the things about ERISA is there, are, there is fee shifting. So they've already gone up. They've had two Seventh Circuit appeals and a Supreme Court argument. So I imagine the amount of fees at issue probably mean that this case is going to be litigated for a while as, as all mm -hmm. the way to conclusion. So we may see uh, Hughes 3 uh, come up to the Seventh Circuit here in the next few years. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's all we have for you today. Thank you for joining us. And we will be back hopefully next month. The idea is to do this once a month, looking back on the prior month's um, opinions. So 
that's it for covering the March opinions. And uh, we'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks from Kyan. Thank you.